If you're a guest with us, our normal pattern of doing things is we just kind of start in the beginning of one book and we work our way all the way through. But um, this month we're thinking together about what it means to know and follow Jesus. And so last week we started this sermon on abiding in Jesus and today we're going to wrap it up. And uh, a couple weeks ago I had the privilege of going up to Brooklyn, New York to visit the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And I went with about 50 other pastors from across our state. And uh, man, the week was great. If you ask me about it, I'll tell you all about it. It's just really incredible opportunity. I uh, learned a lot about life and ministry and prayer and built a lot of really good relationships with pastors that I didn't know before I went. And it was kind of cool how it all worked out. So the 50 of us all met in Dallas and flew out together on American Airlines from DFW in LaGuardia. And so as we're getting on the plane, you know, you can usually spot preachers in a crowd. And so, you know, you get about halfway to the back of the plane, and there they all are, sitting next to each other with their goatees and all the stuff that pastors do. And um, I start to say, hey, what's up? And, you know, they're giving me a hard time because I'm wearing an Alabama hat. And I just had to tell them, hey, you know, it is what it is, real tight. And uh, finally make it to my seat. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting in the middle. Of, I'm on the, like, there's three seats. And so I'm in the middle seat. And to my left is this brother who pastors a church in Grand Prairie. And so as soon as we sit down, we start talking about life and ministry and sharing stories about what God's doing in our church. And uh, it's really great. But over here on the right side, on the window seat, I noticed this guy kind of listening into the conversation. And so I'm talking to my friend Tony, my new friend Tony, and I, hear, I keep noticing this guy, like, looking and looking. And so finally, I'm like, hey, Tony, give me a second. And I turn around to this guy over here, and I say, well, are you a pastor too? And he looked back at me with, like, the biggest eyes and just shook his head. And like, no, I'm not. I'm like, oh, okay. And immediately the next question presented itself. So, well, are you a Christian? And for the next three and a half hours, I had him cornered. <laughs> And it was interesting, though. Like, I asked him, are you a pastor? And he just shook his head. But I asked him, are you a Christian? And he was a lot more honest. He said, no, I'm not. I consider myself agnostic. And so we had a great conversation, three and a half hours in the air, talking about life and faith and team roping and tennis. And along the way, I start to talk to him about my relationship with God and what it means to me. And I talked to him about beginning most mornings with the Bible open and praying. And I think, you know, here's this agnostic man. Uh, I'm talking to him about stuff from a different planet. But he says, oh, you know, actually, I pray every morning too. And I'm confused. <laughs> On the one hand, you're not quite sure if there's a God out there to hear your prayers. But on the other, you pray each day. And so I asked him, I said, well, tell me what that, what that looks like. He said, well, you know, I'll get my cup of coffee, and I'll think about my day and what I hope to accomplish, and I'll express my thanks for my family and for my life. And that's really fascinating. I mean, that's an interesting practice, you know, to think about your day and to express gratitude for your family. I mean, surely that practice would develop all kind of humility and thoughtfulness. And there are probably people out there who would look at that and say, well, you are praying. You're meditating. You know, you're 
practicing mindfulness and connecting with your world. But from my perspective as a Christian pastor, that practice falls short of what I think of as prayer. You know, in Christian prayer, what we do is not think about what we hope might be. Like turning all your hopes and prayers loose to the winds of the universe and seeing where it'll take you. Now, in Christian prayer, we enter into an intimate relationship, not with some God somewhere out there, but with the God that we're convinced made us and saved us and gives us every good gift that we might express thanks for. We don't slip into mantras or vain, meaningless repetitions of words or phrases. We say to God, give me today my daily bread. We have a relationship with God. And so I don't know what that is that he's doing. It's working for him, at least in his current place in life. But I hope I was able to plant some seeds that there is something better out there. And maybe you're just where he is. Maybe you feel like your prayer is an awful lot like those thoughts and hopes cast into the wind. You go through the motions of saying your prayers, but you're not convinced anybody's listening. If that's you, I think Jesus spoke the words in this passage for you. He doesn't want you to have the kind of prayer life that feels like no one's listening. He wants you to have confidence when you pray, an assurance inside your heart that when you express your desires and needs to God, He not only hears you, but He's willing to answer. That's what this passage talks about. In verse 7, Jesus even defines the conditions that must be met in order to have confidence in prayer. And so this morning, I want to point out to you three of those conditions that I think you could summarize like this. When you abide in Jesus, you can expect answered prayers. When you abide in Jesus, you can expect answered prayers. And so like I mentioned, like Joe mentioned, if you were here last week, we started this passage about the vine and the branches. And I had hoped to preach it all as one, but you'll remember last week, I didn't feel like I could get everything said in one hour. And so I split it up into two. And so today we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. And so if you weren't here, I want to catch you up to speed. Jesus uses this parable or picture of the vine and the branches. You're the, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He uses this picture to illustrate the kind of relationship that he wants to have with his followers, with his disciples, with Christians, once he's resurrected and ascended into heaven. And so he explained to those 12, the 11, I guess Judas has left by this point, that there is a fruitful life available. They can live a fruitful Christian life if only they will abide in Jesus. Now I tried to get at what this abiding is all about last week with a definition of my own. I said that abiding means cultivating an attitude of dependence on Jesus. And so when we cultivate an attitude of dependence, we can expect to bear fruit. And I told you as we finished last week that the way we abide, the way we cultivate an attitude of dependence is that we root our lives into Jesus' words. Now today I want to finish that thought and tell you the second way 
we express our dependence on Jesus. The second way we abide. And that's by lifting up our needs to Him in prayer. We express our dependence on Jesus in prayer. And so look at verse 7 again. We're just going to zero in on verse 7 today. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I mean, I don't know, do you, are you the type of person who underlines things? That's something to underline. This is, I mean, of all the things Jesus could say about prayer, this one verse somehow captures it all. At the same time that it compels us to complete dependence on Him, it also invites us to expect Him to answer. It gives us all kind of confidence. He says, when His followers ask, it will be done. Now before I get to the conditions of this kind of prayer, I just want you to think about what this means. Jesus spending the last few moments of his life with his disciples, tells them the secret to prayer. And he, he ends it by saying, whatever you ask, it will be done. Do you have that kind of confidence when you pray? Do you believe that when you pray, your prayers are going to be answered? Or do you feel like the guy I sat next to on the plane, that your, your prayers are going out somewhere? Sometimes it just kind of feels like you're just muttering them to yourselves. Well, this verse is spoken by Jesus to give you the confidence that you can expect to have your prayer answered. I mean, in telling his disciples this, Jesus really takes up all that the Bible has to say about prayer. I mean, he follows the contours of the Old Testament, like what David expressed in Psalm 4. Think about this. The Lord hears when I call to him. Man, that's confidence in prayer. If I pray, the Lord hears. David generalizes it. Psalm 69, he said, The Lord hears the needy. There's not a lot of nuance to that. Not a lot of caveats. Just basic promises. The Lord hears me when I pray. The Lord hears the needy. If you're going to think about those two ideas and use one word to describe Jesus' attitude to prayer, I think you'd have to say, He's confident. He believes in his heart of heart and wants us to know that if we ask, it will be done. The Lord hears. In other places, Jesus explains the confidence like this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's John 14. In John 16, he says it even simpler than that. Ask, and you will receive. Now, i got lots I want to say about the conditions for answered prayer. But before we even get there, I just want you to know that there is a way to have confidence. A confidence that when you pray, God hears. It's simple. It's childlike. That when you ask God for something... He gives it to you. And the reason I want to make such a big point about it is because I don't think you believe it. I don't think you believe that. I don't think I believe it, to be honest with you. I don't think that I honestly believe that the God of the universe 
has bound himself to me in such a way that if I ask him for something, he's going to do it. The reason I say that is because when you ask Christians how they feel about their prayer life, they're embarrassed. Now, one survey found that 64% of all Christians pray every day. From a statistical perspective, I guess that's pretty good. More than 50% of Christians pray every day. 64% of God's people take Him up on the offer to ask whatever they will and it'll be done for them. The rest of them, the 36% of us who don't pray every day, I guess feel like we've got everything we need. That, hey God, thank you for the offer, but I've got it today. You know, what's worse is I found this study that said the average pastor prays 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes a day. And from experience, I kind of feel like that's maybe a little high. But think about that. That means that three and a half hours every week, the average pastor is praying. For context, I spend about eight to ten hours in a given week on my Sunday sermon. So I, I spend ten hours doing my best to make sure when you come in here at 1045 on Sunday, you get something from God's Word. But I can only scrounge up three and a half hours a week to ask Him for help. That's crazy. I mean, think about it. If I told you that the Magnolia Mart has a plexiglass cabinet full of winning scratch-off tickets, all you got to do is go buy one and scratch it off and you're going to win. How many of us would go buy one? That's free money. Give them a dollar, you get back five. If I told you tomorrow a certain stock's going to go on a rally, and if you'll sink $100 into it on Monday, by Friday you'll have 1000 How many of us wouldn't take that kind of chance? I mean, what a return on our investment. Tenfold in five days. And then Jesus says, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, if we believe that, if we believed it was as sure as the lotto tickets next door or as the stock market in New York tomorrow, 100% of Christians would pray every day. They believe whatever it is in their heart, whatever thing they need, God's ready to give it, so all i got to do is ask. Every one of us would be in prayer, but we're not. 64% of us pray every day, and pastors spend less than 30 minutes a day in prayer. So what I want you to do today is believe Jesus. You can be confident when you pray. I don't want you to have the prayer life that you've got. I want you to have what He promised, an assurance that when you sit down each morning that God hears your prayers and is ready, whatever you ask, to do it. That you can confidently and boldly walk into the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. And so, how do you get there? How do you get that kind of prayer life? Well, look at these three conditions for answered prayer in this passage. And the first one's simple. God answers prayer when we ask. Now, we've been talking about prayer this whole time. And I know you astute Bible readers recognize that Jesus doesn't really mention prayer in this passage. He doesn't mention prayer in verse 7. Do you see the word prayer? I don't. He doesn't say prayer. He says ask. Whatever you ask. The Greek word, let's translate ask in our Bible, is iteo. And it's, it simply means this. I say simply, it, this is not a simple definition. This is something only a scholar could write. Uh, it means to request, 
with a claim on receipt of an answer. I decipher that to mean simply this, to ask and expect a response. That's what Jesus means when He says to ask. Throughout the New Testament, though, it's used to describe petitionary prayer, like in Matthew 7, when Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. It's like what John says in 1 John 5. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. I mean, could confidence in prayer really be any simpler than that? God's going to answer your prayer. You just have to ask. That's mind-blowing. I don't know about you, i got tons of stuff in my life that I could use God's help in. Tons of areas that I see where if only God would come through, man, my life could be different. And here Jesus tells us, well, if that's the case, if you need God's help, ask Him. And that's, that's crazy. James says in James chapter 1, Ask of God who gives generously when you're short on wisdom, and He gives to all without reproach. When you need direction, ask God, who David said in Psalm 23, guides our path. When you're worried, Paul says, make your requests made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. When you need provision, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, go simply to your Father, because He knows what you need before you even ask. I mean, listen, you want answered prayer. Here's the first condition. God's going to answer, but you're going to have to ask. We know that's the case because the inverse is true. James says in James 4, You have not because you ask not. So it's really simple. You want a prayer life marked by confidence, assurance that when you pray, God's going to hear you and answer your requests? Then get in the habit of asking. Like the way the saint of prayer, E.M. Bounds, put it. He said, prayer is the appointed condition of getting God's help. God's help doesn't come any other way. It seems like God structured our world so that whatever we need from Him, He only gives when we ask. And we've talked about this. I've got a few sermons on prayer where we talk about this sense of dependence. That if we just woke up every day and automatically had everything we need, we wouldn't need to develop the relationship of dependence that God desires for us. He wants the intimate relationship of a father and his child. And so he restricts his help to those who ask. So what do you need from him? What is it that you wish God could give you in your life? What do you need from God? Ask him for it. And see if He won't give it to you. Because that's the first condition of answered prayer. You've got to ask. He knows what you need before you ask, but He wants you to ask. But then the second condition goes a little bit deeper than that. Because you're probably like me. You have a hard time believing that the answer to the problem of our prayer life is not simply that we have not because we ask not. Surely there's some other secret. And I think there is. Because asking in itself is not the condition for answered prayer. But asking is a reflection of something deeper. Jesus says 
If you abide in Me. If you abide in Me. Before God answers our prayers, we have to have this sense of dependence on Jesus. So we have to cultivate this attitude. We have to abide in Christ. Now, if you think about the history of the church, or even the people you've known who seem to be people of prayer, isn't it the case that they're always the people who are most aware of their need for Jesus? I think about the people in the Bible, like James and John. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture is found in Acts chapter 4, where James and John are preaching in the temple, and the Sanhedrin gather them up and bring them for a trial, and they beat them, and then they send them on their way, telling them never to preach in the name of Jesus again. And Luke tells us in Acts 4 that when they got back to all their friends, they gave a report of what happened, and then they let out this crazy prayer. They praised God that they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. And instead of asking God to take away all the persecution and to free them up from all their enemies, they prayed to God that they would have boldness and courage to keep on preaching anyway. James and John, they knew, hey, who are we? Left to ourselves, we're going to lock ourselves away in this room. We're going to keep the gospel to ourselves. We're not going to be faithful to the mission Jesus has given us to preach it to the ends of the world. But God, if you'll help us, We'll continue preaching despite the cost. I think about people like Paul, who learned the secret of facing times of plenty and need. Like, How many times do you think Paul sat in his prison cell asking God to turn him loose? God, just turn me loose. If you'd set me free from this place, I'd get back on the road. I'd go to Spain. I'd go to places that had never heard the gospel before just to preach for you. But in every circumstance, Paul came back to the same idea. He can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. He's a man who prayed to God three times over the thorn in his flesh. Lord, remove this thorn from me. Remove this thorn from me. Remove this thorn from me. And what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul knew how dependent he was on Jesus. And if he was going to be locked up and he was going to persevere until the end, it was going to be through Jesus' help. So he just cried out to him day after day after day. The prayer can't be reduced to a formula. Just a simple, hey, if you say these words in the right order, then you can be confident God hears your prayers. It's not like you can come to my office tomorrow and I'll go in the file, or Jenny can go in the file and pull out the special form. It's got that special number, and if you'll just fill it out, and submit it into the box. In five to ten business days, God will get back to you with an answer. Now, that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works in life. It's not the way it works in prayer. Prayer is not a formula. It's not a, a set series of words to say. Prayer is this deep cry of the heart that just comes out in your moment of deepest need. God, help me. That's prayer. That's why I like what Pastor Jim Cimbalo, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, says in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He says, if I pray because I ought to pray, sooner or later I'll run out of motivation and quit. My flesh is too weak. I have to be driven to pray. You've got to know in your soul that unless you cry out to God and God answers, you're done for that's genuine, heartfelt prayer. It's what the one pastor O. Hallisby said. He says, To pray is to open the door unto Jesus 
and invite Him into your distress. Your helplessness is the very thing which opens wide the door unto Him and gives Him access to all your needs. You want to answer prayer, you've got to abide in Christ. You have to cultivate a sense of dependency. The sense of dependency that explains prayer. Is it surprising to you that we're the type of people who have this cliche, when all else fails, pray. That means when, when you've done everything you can do to get your life in order. It means when you try to everything to get your family on the same page and get you all moving in the right direction with some peace and harmony in the house. That means when you've read every book that's available at the bookstore. When you've checked out all the different preachers and decided which one says it the way you like it. When, when you've done everything else, then, then maybe it's time to cry out to God and ask Him for help. Now the same people who are totally self-sufficient and have no need to depend on Christ, who are not abiding in Christ, but happy to do life on their own, they're the people who struggle with prayer. It's because prayer is a reflection of the abiding relationship you and I cultivate with Christ. Could it be that your problem's not that you have not because you ask not, that our problem is we ask not because we don't think we need? We don't see our need, and so we feel no need to ask. But Jesus says, if you abide in me, then you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's the key. The attitude of dependence that we cultivate on Christ is the necessary precondition for answered prayer. And so if you're like me and sometimes feel like you can handle life on your own, maybe you need to get reacquainted with the facts. Maybe you need to be honest with yourself and with God. You need to say to yourself, the Bible tells me that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That everything that's good in my life that I want to take credit for is actually something that God has given to me freely by His grace. He doesn't owe me any of the good things I wake up to each day. That my life is a gift. Every good and perfect thing comes from above. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of what Paul Ask the Corinthians. He says, what did you have that you did not receive? And in recognizing the giver, cry out to Him for His gifts. See, we've got to cultivate a sense of dependency on Jesus that drives us to our knees and compels us to pray. Until we get there, we won't see a need for it. We won't ask Him for anything because we're totally fine ourselves. Ian Bounds again says this, prayer fills man's emptiness with God's fullness. Man's poverty with God's riches. Prayer puts away man's weakness with the coming of God's power. But what happens when you run into somebody who thinks they're already full? Or thinks they're already rich? Or who thinks they're already powerful? And God's got nothing to offer those kind of people. So let's get honest with our need where the good things we have in life come from. And let that sense of dependency on God, that God, if you don't give me breath tomorrow, I'm, I'm done. God, if you don't help me with my family, I'm done. Depend on Him and cry out to Him in prayer. And then the third condition follows from that. Because if you develop a sense of dependency on Christ, you cultivate that attitude, you're going to root your life in His words. 
And when that happens, His words will root themselves in you. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So you've got to let His words abide in you. The way I'm putting it this morning is that God answers prayers when we align our desires to His. I think that's what Jesus means. I think that's why this is perhaps the most important condition of all. Because Jesus fully expected that His 11 disciples were going to soak up all that He had taught them about Himself and about the way God was working in the world, about the coming kingdom. They were going to see everything that Jesus did and they were going to allow that to take root in their life. They were going to internalize His teaching. And slowly but surely, they would learn to think as He thought. They'd learn to act as He acted. And they'd learn to pray as He prayed. See, there was always this perfect alignment between Jesus' desires and the Father's desires. He'd tell His disciples, like, hey, I'm only doing what the Father told me to do. I'm only going where the Father tells me to go. And the only notable example where this perfect alignment seems out of balance is in a moment of weakness and prayer. That's in Luke 22 and verse 39. Luke tells us, He came out and proceeded as was His custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed Him. When He arrived at the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. I mean, you think about Jesus. I mean, the most conspicuous fact of his life the thing that sticks out above all the rest and sort of makes you wonder is the way Jesus always retreated to private places to pray. It seemed like at every critical moment of his life and ministry, Jesus disappeared to a desolate place and prayed. He was depending on the Father and seeking to align his next steps with whatever it was that God desired for him. And here in this moment, I mean, the, the night of his betrayal, as his Betrayer and the guards had already left the temple or headed over to the Mount of Olives. Maybe he even saw their torches coming up the path. He's locked in a battle. What is it that you're going to do in my life? What is it that you want for me next? And of course, he sees clearly what he wants and what he's going to pray for. Let this cup pass from me. And yet Jesus' desire was so perfectly in line with his Father that he said, yet, not what I will, but your will be done. I mean, Jesus could have asked God, he says in Matthew 26, could have asked the Father, and he would have sent more than 12 legions of angels to guard him and protect him. And yet he fully surrendered himself to the Father's will. I think that's why this is the most important condition for answered prayer. I mean, Jesus expects that just like those first 11 disciples, that you and I, are going to get acquainted with His life as they're presented to us in the Gospels. And we're going to allow those words to take root in our hearts so that they abide in us, they remain in us, so they reshape the way we think about the world. They turn our values upside down. 
And in so doing, the Holy Spirit will take them and transform us from the inside out until we are perfectly conformed into His image. Until we want what He wants. By the way, one commentator put it, he said, when Jesus expects His followers to root themselves in His Word, He means these words will become the dynamic of their lives, taking complete control over a person. A person like that could never ask for anything that's outside of the will of God because they are perfectly controlled by what Jesus has said. And this is exactly what happened. I mean, those disciples who heard these words from Jesus end up telling their followers, like John did in John, 1 John 5.14, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Or like James says in James 4.3, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It could it be that, yeah, we ask God for things, but we don't have the joy of answered prayer because we're not asking for what He wants for us. You know what prayers compel the heart of the Father? Father, give us your spirit. Father, send laborers into the harvest. Give us boldness to declare the gospel. Give me strength to persevere under trial. Help me disciple my family. Help me love my enemies. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to delight in your commandments. Help me to live a life that's pleasing to you. We're like Jesus' disciples have to come to him and they say, Lord, you're going to have to teach us how to pray like you pray. And he doesn't bust out the principles. Well, here are the five keys. Here are the three conditions for answered prayer, boys. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now if I'm honest, there have been times when my prayer sounded a lot like that guy I was flying to New York with. Where I'd wake up in the morning and fix a cup of coffee and I'd sit down and I'd think, all right, God, what are we going to do today? I'd go through my to-do list. Say, hey, help me handle this conversation well. Help me make a difference in the world. Open up doors for me. Provide for my needs. You know, those kinds of prayers. The basic things that qualify as hopes and dreams. All the things that I want. It's like one person said. That we give God the laundry list of requests and ask Him to rubber stamp it. You see, if you want confidence in prayer, you've got to have something deeper than that. Not hopes and prayers cast into the wind. But the requests that come from an overflowing, abiding relationship in Jesus. That you've developed such a dependency on Him that you know unless He answers your prayers, you're sunk in life sort of relationship to His words that guide you in your thinking. So that what you want is what He wants. 
And when that happens, you can have confidence in prayer. When you abide in Jesus, you can expect answered prayers. So this morning, I wonder what it is that you need from God. If He were here today, standing up here on this stage, giving you a blank check invitation, hey, ask of me and I'll do it. What would you ask Him? What is it? You know, I think the most important prayer any person could ever pray is the prayer of salvation. To ask God to forgive you of your sins. To help you follow Jesus every step along the way. To do what Rosa did. Right? To be courageous and to announce your decision for the world to see. That's an important prayer. I hope you've prayed that prayer in your own way, whether it was a preacher who invited you to raise your hand or or whether it was just a prayer in your own room or in a desperate situation, God save me. But if you haven't, maybe today that's the prayer that God would invite you to pray. To ask Him to take the messed up, broken stuff of your life and in Jesus to put it all back together again. And that's why He sent Him. And though He could have stayed at God's right hand forever and ever, He willingly became obedient took on human flesh, kept God's law to a T, and then died on the cross for sins. His promise is simple. Because He rose from the dead, He has victory over sin. And He says, if you will repent and believe in Me, you'll have everlasting life. I encourage you to pray that prayer. But as I look out here, I see a lot of Christian people who are probably like me, if you had to give an account for your prayer life, you'd be ashamed. And what if you need to ask God a simple question? Say, God, I've, I've heard the story today. Heard the lesson, I've heard the points that you care about my needs. Help me to learn to ask you for help. Help me to abide in Jesus. Help His words to redefine my desires. And see what He'll do. Will you pray with me now?